this is how your child lives with True North in mind. Start them now. This is something that you can do that's cost effective. We're not playing any hacks here because we don't have to sell a product or uh, a product. We can sell the process. This is how you live your normal homeostasis life. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits. Thank you for joining us on another week's episode of the show. So today we are talking to Ryan Birdman Parrot. Now, Ryan is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL and a founder of multiple non-for-profits that focus on the rehabilitation of our military and first responders that have been affected in the line of duty. Now, Ryan's work is extremely purposeful. He's a man that has always listened to his calling. And that started in 2001 when the Twin Towers fell. Ryan was a bit of a wayward, directionless student in high school. And the traumatic events of 9-11, coupled by a relationship he had with a teacher of his who was a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer, really propelled him to the military. Now, Ryan trained for that, and he ultimately arrived at basic camp, super fit, ready to go. He excelled. He went to Navy SEALs, ultimately excelled there, and was selected for the elite Navy SEAL Team 7, where he became a sniper, a very, very young member of the team. Now, we talk about Ryan's multiple deployments, particularly focusing on the first one, which was very traumatic. Him and his colleagues were in a Humvee, and they ultimately met a IED, an improvised explosive device, which launched them all out of the vehicle. Everyone was severely hurt physically, emotionally, and psychologically. They all lived, but this really informed the way Ryan was to conduct himself on the rest of his tours. Now, Ryan did leave the military. He was going to get into corporate and that fell through. And he met a vet and this vet was impacted by the war physically. And he was really disappointed to learn that there wasn't a lot of services and support out there for the veterans. This coupled by suicides, deaths, people coming back from war truly impacted, really affected Ryan. And he decided to take matters into his own hands. And this has really led to Ryan's next phase of life, his purpose. And he has built multiple organizations that are focused on supporting those that are serving us and their country, but are not necessarily getting served themselves. We talk about this in greater detail. Now, I came across Ryan through a mutual friend of ours who pointed to me to some of the crazy things Ryan does to drive awareness to his charity. So Ryan is gearing up to do a massive, massive, crazy event where he's going to be skydiving seven consecutive days, seven continents. And once he hits the ground, he's going to be running a marathon and swimming. Yes, you heard that right. Skydiving, hitting the ground, running, swimming. It's a truly remarkable story, folks. One that I wanted to tell. It's a story of listening to your purpose and pivoting as required and something that we all need to do and take into account in our own lives. You know, where is the calling? Where is our calling? Where are we needed? Where's the purpose? That's what we're talking about. So folks, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Ryan. Do enjoy the show. Give us feedback. Rate this podcast. Let us know how we're going. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. Peace. Ryan, welcome to the Ultra Habits Podcast. I have been talking to you on LinkedIn for a while, introduced by our mutual buddy, Shay. Super, super stoked to have you on the show this morning, man. Oh, I'm super excited. Yeah, Shay, he actually just sent me a text. of We have these training sessions with our coach, Chris, and he was running today doing his test and it looked like he had perfect weather and I live in Texas and we have thousand degree weather. So I was like, I don't like you much right now. <laughs> you know, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, but I'm from California and it seems like there's a heat wave there too. It just may be a West coast thing or maybe a West Southwest thing. Right. I think it's just that when anytime God knows that you're training hard. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about that is Shay would love it. 
Oh, Boyd says embrace the suck. <laughs> he's a unique human. He's uh he's introduced me to some really good people, and he he really was firm on the fact that you and I should have this conversation. So I've done a fair bit of research and just such a interesting story. So you're originally from Detroit. You're from actually eight eight mile, right? Is that correct? Yeah, born in eight mile. Yeah. We made we made it famous before the rapper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, w- did the movie depict it correctly? Would you say? Uh, you know, it's so hard to tell. I mean, it's it wasn't the best when I was growing up there. It wasn't. You can look at Detroit and look at some of the back streets of Detroit and say, yeah, that movie looks exactly like it. Not all of it like that. And if you go there today, it's much different than it was forty years ago. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the automotive industry, prior to it taking a hit, Detroit would have been a very different place, right? Like the whole Midwest, I guess, would have been a very different place. And a lot of industry, a lot of manufacturing was severely impacted, I guess, through globalization. And I think that's kind of, you know, prior to that, it would have been a very different place. And I think you grew up, what, in the 80s, right? Yeah. 80s, 90s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, funnily enough, and, you know, like, the universe works in really weird ways. So I don't watch TV. Like I very rarely watch TV, but the other day I was with my wife, she's Australian and American snipers on. And you know, the story about Chris Kyle and my wife is like up in arms around like treatment for veterans. And, you know, she's like, you know, the government should do more. And, and she's kind of asking me, cause she knows I have a lot of vets on my podcast. And she's like, you know, you know, what's the schemes and how involved is the government, particularly the U.S. government, in kind of helping troops when they return? And I was like, I got no idea. Like, I assumed there was a lot out there. And we just having this conversation like literally four days ago, and then you're, you're here on the podcast. So I just thought that was a bit interesting in terms of, of timing. And we'll unpack your purpose and your mission and what you're doing now, but we'll take it back to early days in, in Detroit. So how did you grow up, man? What was your family dynamics like? Yeah, great question. So in Detroit, specifically where I grew up, I moved from Detroit in the heart to East Detroit and then would move out of that eventually. But it wasn't the best. I mean, my parents, they um, I always make the joke they should have never been married, but they were. And so the dynamic between the two of them wasn't the greatest, but equally parented me the best they could. They divorced when I was five. And so that became a pretty precarious position for me because I would move from family member's house to family member's house, try to figure it out, move in with our grandparents, move in with our other grandparents. And what I've realized um, now is that because I was always moving from place to place, I never had time to make friends because I never had time to develop communication skills. I was always moving to the next, the next never got to know anybody. So this is why I have so many friends and why I pride myself on friendship. It's the biggest thing to me outside of my family because it's so important to spend your time on this earth with others. And I didn't have that for so long. So it was very difficult growing up. I learned to internalize a lot of stuff and I would realize that that would also help me in the future when it came time to grind things out. Like you can complain about things or you can just get after it, grind it out and get through it. And that's what you do when you kind of live in your own head. So I think it all of this stuff is a catalyst to setting you up for the future. And that's how if you talk to anybody who's done anything like of greatness or some heroes that are out there or whatever, you can start to see the trend in their life to how they truly got there if you just look at it instead of wondering how it came to be, you know? Do you think the lack of attachment growing up enables you to be more adaptable? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. And when you when you internalize things and you learn how to just play within your own surroundings by yourself and um, you make fictitious characters up and do all that kind of stuff, definitely. There's no question. And then it's just a bonus when you have friends that are coming in the mix, but you already have that foundation. So, yeah. Yeah, I find it's the harder route to developing relationships. But when you have that base, you're able to then build meaningful relationships without becoming dependent upon them. So the way that you've come about things, you had to develop yourself and, and, and do it in isolation. And then you evolved, obviously, to a place now where you have 
meaningful relationships, but I would assume that because of how you came up, you're, you don't get overly dependent upon these relationships. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are, there are those that I definitely, I need in my life. You know, I want the specific people in my life and, you know, we'll talk about one specifically uh, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, for the most part, my, my boys, my wife, my parents, those are people that I truly are dependent on everybody else. You know, I just, it's friendship. It's, I'm going to do my best for you. You're going to do your best for me. And that's what makes our life, our friendship. Another really interesting part of your story and whether you undercooked this or not, I wanted to kind of ask you, it didn't seem like you were necessarily super impressive when it came to sport. I think you did some wrestling, you did some hockey, which you were pretty passionate about. But would you say that you were like a hyper-disciplined kid? Like, like, were you a sporty kid? Like, what was your view now looking back on that? So I was a disaster. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, Two left feet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just everything about it. So I grew up in a family, both sides of my family were very competitive in athletics. And we had some pro, we had a pro football player, basketball player, some golfers, the works. And so it forced us into playing every sport, trying everything out. The problem was when you're forced into a sport, you don't like it. So there's that. And then the other side to it is because I was doing so much that I really not, I never got the chance to become truly good at anything. But I wouldn't put that on my parents to say that I did too much. And it's their fault. I would say I didn't have the drive internally for any of it. So even if I would have had one singular focus and I'd have been playing it, I still would never have taken it to a higher level because the oomph inside of me wasn't there. And I say that in all walks of life from not having the friendships, playing less than competitive at the sport I was playing at, overbooked on them, failing almost every subject in school, absolutely going nowhere fast. And so, yeah, the my life was, uh, and I didn't even care about any of that. That's where I look back now and I'm like, God, how, like, I always say if my 40 year old self could go back to that kid, I would whoop his ass, you know? And I'm pretty sure that a lot of us would say that, but for me, it was just like, not that I'm like some, you know, incredible human now, but I'm saying just the, the road that we walk to get to where we are today, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So yeah, but terrible all around. <laughs> what impact did you, you spoke about a teacher, um, in your, your, your story, around uh the uh, the u.s marine ex-us marine what role did he play if any in starting to shape how you viewed the world so i remember getting threatened by my dad at one point that i was going to military school because i was failing and i was just not turning it on and i was like i don't want to do it you know and then years later i'd be like hey dad i got a, i got an idea and so, yes, my teacher, Mr. Barnes, who was my motivational psychology teacher in high school, he was just this hyper dude who would walk in the class, just Marine Corps everything and just rip it apart. And he's running around the room with the American flag, 100 miles an hour, just like a tornado hit the room. And then he, one day he didn't do any of that. He just comes to before the room. And he said, hey, ladies and gentlemen, there's one thing better than the Marine Corps, and that's U.S. Navy SEALs. And that's what I think now is why teachers are so important, because the teachers who truly care about the students will not only discuss everything with the class, but they will really target people in that class. And I think that day he was targeting me. And so does he believe that the, the SEALs are better than the Marine Corps to him as a Marine? Hell no. But that day he said it, and that inspired me. And so I stayed after class and like, Mr. Barnes, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And he said, dude you're not even passing my class and it's an elective. Are you going to pass SEAL training? You can imagine my face, but that was it. I mean, the catalyst of that coupled with 9-11 was what really, I mean, 9-11 tipped every one of us to move a different direction that moment. But just having that backdrop of saying, okay, SEALs is something I'm contemplating or the Navy. And now we just had almost 3000 people murdered. I'm going to do my part. You touched on a really <clears throat> important topic for me personally, too, as a father. You know, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday because my son had scouts last night. He's five. He's the smallest dude in there. And, you know, I'm not a veteran, um, but I seem to have a lot of veterans on this show. I think there's just a the connection there. And um, 
you know, they're saluting the Australian flag and they're all wiggling and shit. And the scoutmaster cracks the shits, right? Gets upset. I said to my wife yesterday, I said, it's just so nice to see other adults willing to discipline our kids. And I don't know if that's because I don't see that anymore because it's just, we live in a land of everyone's like cupcaking around and too scared to say something that might piss someone off because I don't know, like, you know, whatever, right? Society's shifted. But I really like the Scoutmaster. She's a bit messy. She's a bit like, she's a bit just whatever, but she's not afraid to tell the kids to kind of shut up, right? Or like to pull up or whatever. And I just think that we're really missing that um, because we have moved to a place where we're too concerned about how we may be perceived. We want, you know, we don't want to ruffle feathers. Do you have a view on this? Yeah, I mean, so giving your child a good swift, you know, smack across the ass is an important thing, you know, because you everybody who had that in their life remembered that. And there was a pinnacle time where they remember a specific one that kind of changed their trajectory. And I think that's completely fine. I think that society as a whole has let people think that it's unacceptable to discipline your children in a certain manner. And I think it's ridiculous. Um, in the military, it's no different. You do what you're supposed to do or you're going to get punished for it. The punishment for us would be losing our rank or losing our right to be in that military unit, which is catastrophic to somebody who believes in it. But these kids, you know, they definitely, we need to get harder again. I mean, they have social media, they have electronics, they have all the garbage that keeps them focused away from reality when in fact they're missing the reality. So my wife says the best, you know, you can take a kid and put them on an electronic and they could sit there and their eyes just glaze over and they watch it and they just sit there stuck. Or you can take them outside and watch them completely flourish. They get into dreamland and they start adventuring and they get dirty and they break things. That's critical. So I, I, I'm 100%. I mean, anybody wants to send me their kids for uh, some some, uh, <laughs> some talking, send them my way. <laughs> our, uh, our mutual friend Joe DeSena loves to do that too with the kids, right? Uh, I'm sure, sure you, you're familiar with his stuff. He does. He has them walking around kettlebells in the neighborhood. They all think he's a lunatic, but I mean, he's, got a, he's got a point. I, I think, you know, I've been, you know, I've had opinions thrown to me about the fact that my son runs with me and he runs, you know, four or five, six K, he's five, but we make a day out of it. We go halfway, get hot chocolate. He sits on my lap. There's a real bonding process there. And I, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm curating his identity in terms of how I want him to see himself, right? In terms of the, the way he talks to himself, I want him to develop that language where he's pushing himself. And then I'm meeting that with gentleness and kindness and love. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it's a very planned strategic approach but i think that we've we've lost the willingness to do that because we're getting lazy as parents i think to your earlier point you put a kid outside their behavior completely changes when they're inside they just shit's just destroyed it's chaos they can't behave as soon as you take them outdoors you notice a shift right it's crazy before the electronic movement everything was harder right you had to be disciplined as a parent to get your kids to do Put them outside now. It's easy to go put them on the TV, turn on that one button, and it's like boom, they've got it. Purpose. So we got to get back to being hard. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how did you go from completely having a lack of of discipline and a view on the long game to then prepare solid for two years? Like, was that just like a a Jesus moment like that enabled, like what was the actual mechanisms that took you from, okay, you're not really having any focus. Then you meet this teacher, the nine 11 happens. Okay. Now you're inspired, but how did you actually see that inspiration through with commitment for two years? I never really thought about the long-term game, even when going through training, as far as like what my life would look like, because what seal training teaches you mostly to do is focus on the moment. It's about that evolution at hand and nothing more. Because if I were to think about the end of SEAL training and all that is encompassing, I'd probably quit. Most people would because it's a lot to take on. So if I can stay in the moment and really focus on, am I going to do, am I just going to make through this evolution? That was what they taught us. So it really, it was a great setup for me to really understand what we all try to achieve in life, live in the moment, be present, enjoy what you're doing, whether it's sucking or not. Um, 
the transition for me, it was quite simple, but it was emotional and it was the most powerful thing for me. I always say it's find your spark. So your spark, my spark for me was, I just wanted to call my parents after hell week, which is the toughest week we have in steel training. I wanted to call them and say, thanks for believing in me. And thanks for always sticking by me because I did it. And I made the phone call the fifth, the five and a half days in hell week when we graduated. I made the phone call to my mom and I said, Hey, I just want to let you know that I'm super grateful for everything that you did for me because all of it paid off and I made it and I'm going to be an F and Navy SEAL. We started crying and I started crying and I was an emotional basket case because it was five and a half days with no sleep. I was like, all right, I got to go get like a jump, a ton of food and I got to pass out. But that little thing of keeping what I say, keeping a promise to yourself. Every single day, we're so good at giving, making promises to our family, to our friends, to people around us and business, whatever. And we always miss ourselves. And so when's the last time you made a promise to yourself that you kept? Well, I made that promise to myself that I was going to call my parents as simple as it is. And it sucked and it got hard. And I watched a lot of people that I knew go away and quit and get hurt. And I was blessed enough to be one of the finishing few that made it. And I got to make that phone call. So make a promise to yourself every once in a while and keep it and uh, make it a good one. It's a really interesting point. Um, you brought up, you know, around having the skill to remain in the moment, but see yourself at the end too, right? So like there's times where you need to leverage, I suppose, when you're suffering and you need inspiration within that suffering as an ultra runner, I, I it happens with me to me all the time. You're in the moment, but then you may need to pivot and kind of see the long game to get that inspiration to keep moving, but then come back to where you're at, right? So like it's a skillful piece, but I think it's an it's important skill for people to develop because it's easy to lose your why when you're in it. Yeah, you you I mean, you would know this better than anybody is when you get into those distance runs. I mean, how much time would you say that you spend yelling at yourself or fighting with yourself or just getting in that headspace where you're like all you're doing is just dealing with trying to get out of the scenario even though you're in it. And maybe if you become the higher level like you are of running, but for me, like I fight myself constantly when I run longer distances and I'm always in that headspace. But then you realize like, okay, I just spent all that time putting energy into something that doesn't matter. And now I'm that much closer to the finish line. Okay. Well you get through and if for those of us that aren't SEALs, somehow you get onto SEAL Team 7 and you're young. Now, for a person like myself that's not in the military, what I understand that generally that's reserved for the older members or the more experienced members. Like, why were you able to kind of, I guess, skip the, the entry-level stuff? What was the reasons given to you? Did they ever tell you why? I didn't know any better. I mean, I enlisted right after 9-11 and right after high school graduation, I got, uh, I went to the Navy and I got picked up to go to BUDS or SEAL training. So I got selected and I passed the challenge. And then when I got into uh, SEAL training, it just, you didn't, I didn't look back. It was just such a, an incredible ride. And then I found myself legitimately graduating SEAL training and, you know, looking at, you know, the guys, when I joined the SEAL team, I mean, I was not legally old enough to drink a beer, yet I was legally old enough to be on one of the most elite units in the world. And everybody else was older than me. And you're selected to go to those platoons. They do like an NFL draft and they choose you. I never found out why I was chosen. I mean, there was some speculation as to good attitude, you know, pretty, pretty decent performer in all aspects, nothing amazing. Um, and that's really what you want to be as a human, right? Like, I don't need to be the best at anything, but if I can be pretty decent at the majority of things that I try, then we're cooking, you know? So the expertise just takes a lot longer to get to. Um, and for us as SEALs, we have to do a lot of different things. So that's why we look at our mentors who are the oldest guys in the teams who have the most knowledge as our practitioners. But yeah, I had no idea. I made it. I was selected. I went to it's the SEAL Team 7 platoon and yeah, it was uh, it was mind bending to say the least. I mean, I always make the joke. I went from being a a photo printer at Walgreens to a, you know, <laughs> this must be Seal Week. We just had Mark Devine on the show earlier this week. Who you know, he's a good friend of ours, and 
<clears throat> we're talking about he he brought up a really interesting point. He said that in his view, a lot of seals can get through seal training because they know how to deal with trauma, right? They're generally young men that might have had certain backgrounds that kind of know how to to deal with trauma. And we had this whole conversation of how do you evolve beyond that? In your view, how much of SEAL training is physical strength, mental strength, emotional strength? Like if you were able to just, or if you were to break that down, what would you say the components would look like? I would say that, you know, anybody who wants to show up, well, let's, we can segregate it into two different categories. The time that I went through versus now, and I act like I'm super old, but <laughs> I am old when it comes to this because all my mates are not running the show, but they're physically way better and going into the program, the faster, the stronger, all that good stuff. They've got coaching now. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we didn't have. Um, but I think there's a component where I would say it's, it's definitely 90% mental, 10% physical. They say it's a little bit of luck too. Um, truly because a lot of guys do get hurt that could make it, would make it, um, but get broken in a way that they cannot forge on. Um, the physical side, you have to show up. I mean, it, it, this is a simple thing about it. If you want something that's you know hard and you show up and you're not prepared physically, then you're a dumbass. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? Like, I'm going to go run 100 miles today. No, you're not because you've never done a marathon. You're an idiot. So there's a lot of that simplicity um, stuff. But the biggest thing is the mental side. And I feel like we've tried to dissect this and talk through it as teammates and that. Did we birth or was it something through our lives that changed where it unlocked a section of our brain to say, you know, deal with the harder stuff. But it really is a function of just staying in place and doing what they're asking of you. You know it's gonna stop. The things that are hard are worth it. And so when you look at somebody who quits and you're still staying there, it just proved to you right there and then that you can still be there. So okay, I'm gonna do that until the next person quits. I'm gonna do it. So this is the thing I used to say to myself in Hell Week was that guy next to me and that guy next to me, they may be on any other day of the week faster than me, stronger than me, more personable, whatever it was. But today I'm just as good as them. And I'm going to stay here. And then that was, that was it to keep me through. But it's definitely all mental. Because you know this being an ultra athlete that you have to be physically capable of running or anything but you know that your mental is going to drive your body way farther than your physicality is, right? Yeah. Ryan, this is an interesting point uh, with ultra running. And I'm not talking about the elite professional ultra runners. Like, let's put them to one side. But my view is that having an athlete's mindset sometimes in the world of ultra can be limiting and detrimental because you start to see things in a different lens. Now, if performance and getting a good time is your goal, that's the way to go. But then you've got the the people, the David Goggins crowd, right? Like the people that are there just to challenge themselves and they're willing to suffer through. And I've had this conversation with Joe DeSena about people that get through the Spartan death races. They're like moms, they're CEOs, they're not your athletes and sometimes not even elite military people. Because I think once you start to look at things through performance orientation, you start to develop a limiting belief system of what can or should be done. And I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say. And, And I've heard that to be the case with SEAL training too. Like a lot of athletes don't necessarily get through, right? Right. I mean, I thought, I remember looking at this guy when we started day one, and I swear to God, it was Lance Armstrong. I'm not kidding you. He looked like Lance. He had the body like Lance. He, t- he even said he was a professional triathlete. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, what am I going to do here? Like, if this guy's here and he's going to, like, there's no way. And he quit on the first, the second or third day. And I was like, you just, it's a whole different mindset. It really is. Because this is the other side to it, too. And I always say, like, if you could be a parent, then you could be a SEAL because SEAL training has a start and a finish. It's going to end. The evolution will end, whereas parenting, it doesn't or harder. But then when you look at just 
the athletics as a whole, it's like, okay, I know that this is a start and a finish. So all I got to do is show up and it'll end at some point. And that is the mindset that you want is like, I know it's going to end. Let's dive into your deployments. Now, I I don't want to go through all of them because there were like tons and you were like a serial deployer, but I want to focus on your first deployment in Iraq. That was a pretty life changing experience. Can you walk us through that deployment and what happened? Yeah. I mean, the first scenario is, I mean, you've been training for, I mean, between SEAL training and SQT and then getting to your team and training. I mean, you've got about three years of training before you even see the show. And so this is a time where it's like a yin-yang. Part of it is I cannot wait to go overseas and test my skills. The other part of it is I've never done this before. I'm brand new. I'm terrified because I don't know what this looks like. And I had been told that as SEALs, we don't just go outside the wire and drive around to see if there's anybody who wants to fight. We're going after targeted people who are really bad, who know we're coming, who want us to show up and fight them. So I've got all these emotions going through my head. I'm brand new. And you haven't proven to the platoon that you've got what it takes yet. You're still a new guy. So you've got a lot riding on it, a lot of pressure. And so we get overseas and I remember we showed up at night, which is, you know, just how we showed up, but I didn't see anything. I mean, we just went right to the base and then we were there and we were in our barracks and that complete shit hole. And we're like, okay, this is my new quarter for the rest of the six months we're deployed or whatever. And okay. And you see the other platoon there and it's interesting, new guy, fresh gear clean you know it's it's, it's mostly you see the guys who are just getting done with their six-month deployment they look a lot different maybe a little bit tired ready to be home and you're like whoa and so i was always that guy who was infatuated of the people that were before me even when i was a seal i looked at somebody who was more sealed than me and i'd be like whoa that's navy seal right there that's cool you know i was i always thought that hey every team is the mascot That'd be me. So I, um, so we started operating and, you know, doing these things that we do. And because you're a new guy, you're not doing the front of the train. You're not doing the hardcore operations. You're usually in the back and you're watching what happens. By the time I make entry, the target's clear and secure. Everything's done. You're like, cool. I'm here. Anybody need any help? So you start to get a better understanding of what you're there for. You start to see how this really happens what you are there to do and then you start to get good at what you do um i wouldn't say for me as a new guy because you're still learning and you're still you still don't get to operate as much but you just have a better understanding of how the whole thing works three months into our deployment we were driving down route michigan which is the most deadly road in iraq at the time and uh our vehicle was struck by an ied and it blew me straight out of the turret into the sky um, and I always say that joke, you know, it blew me into the sky. It really fired me up on top of the Hummer, which still moving 180 pounds with gear, 190 pounds with gear up on top of our Hummer, ejecting me. That's, you know, powerful. And um, first, secondary burns, shrapnel. And I was the least injured in the vehicle. Everybody else was injured pretty bad. And that right there was just a mind shift for me. Like, okay, no matter how hardcore you are, no matter how good you think you are, there are things out there that are so much more violent and powerful than you, and you have to have that respect. And so, you know, we were very blessed where everybody worked together, a cohesive team. Everybody got surgery right out of the gate and was fixed and went back home. But that would send me down a path of saying, okay, I need to become a better operator. I need to be, I need to learn more. I need to take this way more seriously. Not that I wasn't, but you know the deal. You can be so good at something and say, okay, now I want to get better. And that was that catalyst right there. Okay, what am I going to do now? How am I going to be more of an asset to the team? And so my point from that was once I recovered and got back to a platoon, I said, okay, I want to be a sniper because the hardest school that I believe we have in Naval Special Warfare is tough. Um, and I don't have to be 250 pounds to fight a, an offensive lineman, right? Become a bush and hide and all this good stuff, right? But just the mathematics and the coefficients and just understanding everything about bullet trajectory and that was really neat. And the guy that I was blown up with, one of them was my team lead sniper. 
and I wanted to be like him. So that's why I selected it. Hmm. It's uh, it's really interesting that that happened for you at the beginning of your soldiering, right? Like I, I like it was probably your most traumatic physical experience from my understanding in your story. And it happened right at the beginning because it would have orientated your mindset for your whole career in the military, right? Like versus it happening at the end. I just, yeah, I, I think it's interesting in many ways. Maybe it was a blessing and in, in kind of kept you alive to a degree too, because it woke you up to the reality of you're not in a video game, right? This shit's for real, right? Like, you know. Yeah, it's that. And it's to the, tune of it would lead me down a path that I might not have ever known afterwards because we didn't know anything in 2005 when that happened about traumatic brain injury or traumatic stress or any of this stuff. And, you know, one of the first guys in the war to get, you know, rocked like that wasn't the first, but one of them. And so, you know, you just go back to doing your job and then one day you snap and you're just like, whoa, that is completely uncharacteristic of me. What is going on here? And you just kind of put it to bed until you start to see others have the same issues and like, all right, we got some, we got problems here. There was a lot of collaboration, um, bilateral training. I've always wanted to ask someone this, and I'm going to ask you this. There isn't a lot of information out there on Delta Force. In your view, I know that you, you collaborated with them. Like what's the, are they, are they the same as DevGrew? Like what's the key difference with how they operate? Cause there seems to be a lack of real information about them i've always wanted to ask someone about what do they do like what why and why is there such a lack of information about them versus let's say the seals in general well i mean i'll tell you what i can give you kind of an overview that i understand but not have been at that command i wouldn't know anything other than just obvious stuff but they're very good at keeping quiet because they should and we should be a better, we should do a better job. Certainly we have to talk about things that we do for our younger generation, because if we don't share certain things, then what in the hell are our kids going to look at and say, well, I want to be like that. I mean, we have to recruit, we have to market, but there's a better way we can go about it than just glorification. Um, what Delta Force, they just, they keep quiet and they do their job. Um, they're very good. They're very good at what they do. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about specifics of what they do that I do know because that's for them to discuss. But I'll tell you that knowing what I know, I wouldn't want to fight them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that seems to be um, the sentiment, right? So, so moving forward, you you start to deploy, and at some point, you you want to transition out, and you decide to transition and there was something you said which really resonated for me that you were looking for signs of what you should be doing versus what you wanted to do so from as what i understand you had something lined up in dallas fell through what happens yeah that was a really interesting time for me it was a, a tough time so i remember getting out i remember leaving seal training for the last time as you know officially in uniform and I was excited because I had this new position, this new gig. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I was going to go do something. I had an opportunity given to me that would never normally never come to me. So I'm like, I have to jump on that right now. Um, and I had done eight years in the SEAL team. So I was very happy with what I had accomplished. And I was, I was burned out. Um, when I got to Dallas, I found out that the company I was going to go work for was down and they were not hiring. They were firing. So. I obviously didn't take that role. And so I had no job. I had no income. I knew nobody. And I was in a place where I knew nothing. And I got really scary really quick. Um, so I basically went to work in security. I was passed over to a group that worked in security. And along the way of doing this, it was simple security stuff. But I got to meet a lot of influential people. And what they would do is instead of, you know, I didn't even know the questions to ask them. So they would essentially just say to me, let's help you. What do you want to achieve in life? And I'm like, I have no clue. Like I just gave up a career that I absolutely worked my ass off to get into. I loved it. My brothers are everything to me. It's a, such a great job. Now I have nothing. I don't know where I want to go. 
Like I thought the job that I was taking was really going to be my path financially. And I was going to learn some business, but it didn't work out. So I don't know. And so, well, we can't help you if you don't know. And it's interesting how things come into your life because right around that time frame, I met an army ranger who was severely burned in an IED like mine, only his was way worse. And he carried around the burns on his face, his hands. You can see the disfigurement. The injury was just horrific. And I asked him point blank, what are they doing for you guys? And he said, this is as good as it gets for me, buddy. At that point, he had had three dozen surgeries. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how could you come back from war and say, this is as good as it gets for you? Like, there's got to be better answers. And so even though I didn't even think that was my calling or my next position in life, I was so mad and just angry seeing that and hearing that, that I went home that night, studied, couldn't find anything to give him that was open source. Like, hey, let's go raise you some money. Let's get you here and just take care of you. Nothing. So called him the next day. I said, hey, man, if I were to start something on your behalf, would you join me? And he's like, brother, I'm in. I was like, okay. So that became the birth of Sons of the Flag. And the idea for us was, could we truly help the patient as a veteran or active duty military completely by getting them to the right burn care specialist to look at their wounds and then help them heal their wounds? And that immediately spread to the fire service where they're like, you got to open your doors to the fire service because we want to be in. And then it blew up in my face. It went from just one idea and a thought process to now we're 10 years old in 38 states, team leaders. We got events going around the country. And we're putting patients through actual surgery with burn reconstructive surgeons, giving them a real holistic look and then surgery to counter it. That's effective. And we're hiring doctors to become burn surgeons. So I never would have thought this would have happened. But Sons of the Flag for me was a big, big part of my healing process from the traumas, from war, and probably from my past as a, as a child. It's really interesting. Ryan, since I've left the U.S., I have to say, it's a, a big statement. I don't feel like the United States takes care of its people to the degree it should. Like, and you know, I think even in the main, right, healthcare, and uh, there's a lot of challenges there. And I think that it's unfortunate that people like you have to do this um, to pick up the slack. So you have this brilliant idea in my view to evolve your approach and that's through bird's eye view right so you what through the process of sons of the flag do you kind of uncover there's a bigger issue at play here like what what's the evolution of bird's eye view project so when looking at it sons of the flag is specific to burn care and there's so many other injuries that are created through burns right so you have amputation, you have issues with cancer, you have just a multiple of issues besides the mental side of the house. And so why not find partners that we could partner with to really drop that person in the epicenter of all these organizations and say, let's play pinball with them, essentially. I'm going to send them to you, then to you, then to you. Well, how do you gain those real partnerships? You invest in them. I don't care what it is like, yes, we can work together because we like each other for a point in time, but then there's going to be a point in time where I'm calling on you too much. And it's like, man, I just, I can't afford it or whatever it is. No, we're going to put together an event that's bird's eye view project where we can choose charities that are vetted and approved. We can go raise capital, deploy it to all those organizations and create that epicenter of partnerships because no charity in the world is going to win the war on everything without the support of others. They need to get that through their damn heads. They think they can solve the world with their own charity, and that's number one. It's like, it may be awesome, but it's not the thing that's going to fix everything. It's all of us working together to fix the problem. And everything, and I'll just give you this to you because this leads me to where I'm at today. So running Sons of the Flag and then creating Bird's Eye View Project, two completely different charities. One is programmatic, meaning 24-7 patient care helping. Bird's Eye View Project is a pastor, so we raise capital through events, and then we push it to our other organization partners, and we're developing and redeveloping Bird's Eye View right now to be much more robust. Everything in my life up until 2019 was fantastic. You know, turning and burning, we're working hard. And then I get a call from a teammate of mine that my sniper partner uh, took his life. And I think the only thing I can, the only way I can describe it is if you really 
could have somebody reach into you and just rip your pride right from you completely in a moment's notice. That was it. And it was so hard to understand and to, to hear and to deal with. But it took a different approach on this one. Instead of saying, I'm going to just cry and cry and cry and cry and feel horrible, which I did do, and I still do, I'm going to do something about it. And his name is David R. Metcalf. He was my true north, our platoon's true north. He was a badass. He's what you would expect a Navy SEAL to be and a human being to be. And so I put a thesis together and I quit my job and I have nothing lined up behind it. But the idea behind it was, is this just brain issues or is it more? And so my thesis became, has every person in the military community who has taken their life had a brain injury or is there something else at play? And I don't believe that they all had brain injuries. Look at the fire service. They're committing suicide at a cyclic rate and they're not getting brain injuries like IED blasts and that. So there's more at play here. So I said, what if it's physiology? What if it's physiology? It's the basics of life. If your body is completely out of whack because we destroy it as we get older and America makes it really easy to do that with our eating habits and the garbage out there. What if we were to get back to the basics of our anatomy and get people to their homeostasis again? Would it in fact make their brains feel better and make them function better? And so I pitched it to some scientists because I'm an idiot. Obviously, I told you earlier that I'm a scholar and I was doing great in school and everything was great. But ultimately, this was my thesis. And I sent to these scientists and they said, dude, this is exactly it. I was like, okay, so how do we debut that? And that is where our new project called the Human Performance Project was birthed. It was a year and a half ago. And this has been the hardest thing I have ever had to accomplish. And we're not even there yet. But you want to talk about learning more about my anatomy and just where I'm failing inside. Like, never mind dealing with my emotional stuff and just trying to be a better human Getting into the physiological side of your body and having to rework that, there's so much work we can do as humans on ourselves. What's the 7X seven, seven project, Ryan? So that's the human performance project. 7X is the deployment for this greater project. So the idea for us is we're training all year long to do a battery of tests next year that will encompass human performance that we can put in a manual. So essentially this year, my athletes, all seven of us will train. We are trained by Chris Hoff, who's just legend. I love him. And I also hate him because he's our coach and he demands. He's a fantastic coach. And we're training all year long. And then next year in February, we will deploy where we will skydive in, then run a full marathon and plunge into the water and do that in succession on all seven continents in seven days. And that should break us because we are not high-end athletes. After that, we really focus with our dietitian and our PT and our scientists and all our experts or subject matter experts on rebuilding. And we're going to take all of this information and put it into a manual that will be sold globally to give it to your 14-year-old child to say, this is how your child lives with True North in mind. Start them now. This is something that you can do that's cost-effective. We're not playing any hacks here because we don't have to sell a product or uh, a product. We can sell the process. This is how you live your normal homeostasis life. And then if you are a truly somebody who has trauma from being military first responder or somebody like you who just runs their ass off all the time, you've got physical trauma, mental trauma. How do you reboot? Everything is going to be in this manual and there's going to be a documentary that encompasses it so that you can understand. And it's all scientific data back. It's not about glorification. You won't see one person over the other. It's like, check me out. It's going to be disaster. It's going to be hard. It's going to be everything that we need as a society to say, I can do this and I'm going to do this because I want my life to be healthy and happy again. Brilliant. Well, Man, this has been an amazing conversation, Ryan. And, uh, you know, we're going to land this plane now. Just firstly want to thank you for coming on the show. And before we go, there's always a focus on habits. And there was something I read about you in terms of your, your night preparation. Can you walk us through that? Because I think it's really good to leave 
our audience with how you prepare because I, you know, I was doing some research and for whatever reason, some information popped up around what you do with the Norma Tech, uh, some of the things you do at night in terms of your prep. Just wanted you to walk our audience through, like, how do you get ready for your day? Like, how do you prepare for your day? So the best way I can describe it that I, I don't always win at every single day, just time change. And sometimes I just want to say I need some more time to shut my mind down. But you should warm up in the morning and you should go down at night, same type of ma uh, mantra. So when you wake up in the morning, if you jump on your cell phone, it's a problem. And so the rule of thumb should be don't touch your phone until you leave your house to go to work. Well, in that meantime, while you're leaving your house to go to work, you should probably just keep it stored until you get to work because you shouldn't text while driving or talk while driving. You can get your mind right. And so be present with your family when you're at home in the morning, drink a tall glass of water in the morning, supplementation if you have it, um, and be there present. And so what I started to do is go outside in the morning and spend 20 minutes out in the sun, drink a glass of water or some herbal mate tea, and then give my blessings out to the universe and just say, what am I grateful for? And it's amazing how that, and I used to think like, you're, you're saying what the who? And no, it's just absolutely amazing when you just look at what you are grateful for. How grateful are we? You know, to be able to wake up in the morning and breathe the fresh air and all this stuff. So every morning I start off with no electronics, um, go outside, have some tea, give my blessings. So grateful. And then when I get to work, then I can start actioning because my mindset, I warmed up correctly. Same thing at night. When you get home, there's a point in time where you got to cut the electronics off and just spend time with your family. And then don't touch them. Again, set the timer, put it on the charger and leave it alone for the rest of the night. When you go down, go down. Let your mind completely slow down. So that's essentially what I'm doing. And I'm trying to build it in because this training schedule is getting out of control. Plus recovery. I do Norma Tech every single day. We've got the Theragun. I've got other kinds of doing cold plunge and heat therapy and just all kinds of stuff. And Chris keeps demanding more distance out of us. And it's smoking me even more. And I'm like wearing compression socks at night when I sleep. And I'm like, God, help me. So. Yeah, I've been there, done it, bro. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it gets intense. It, 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 you know, when your runs are getting earlier and earlier, it feels like you're always living in the dark, too particularly if you're still working, getting home at night, you're running early. It's like you're just living in the dark. But before we go, uh, Ryan, where could our audience learn more about you, man, and what you're doing? Go to AmericanExtreme.com and you can reach out to us. We have a humongous company of two people that are running the actual website. So I will, you will get in touch with us. I will see your response and I will be able to reach out to you. <laughs> Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate everything, brother. Thank you. Thank you.